Well, the Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Welsh preacher, arguably one of the best um, expository preachers of the 20th century. Um, He's called the good doctor because he was a medical doctor before he became a pastor. And uh, he had a very promising career as a medical doctor. Even as a a young man, as um, as soon as he graduated uh, med school, he made a name for himself and developed a reputation of being a master diagnostician. Uh, He could tell what was wrong with people, even if it was a very rare disease. Uh, He just had this encyclopedic knowledge, a brilliant man, but he credits his ability to make a diagnosis from his attention to detail and first principles. He would just spend a lot of time observing. He would make note of a lot of things. He'd ask questions, and he would get to the heart of the issue, often without doing any other tests. Uh, One example was um, he was going to a patient whose symptoms confounded all doctors. Nobody knew what was going on, so this young man said he would take a stab at it. The patient's driver came to pick him up, and as Lloyd-Jones was driving with the driver, he was asking him some questions about his employer. And uh, by the time they got to the house, he said, it's no need for me to see him. Um, You can turn around and take me back. I know what the problem is. And he rightly diagnosed the person as having Pell-Epstein type of lymphedema which is an extremely rare disease, unheard of at the time, and yet he knew it. He diagnosed it just from asking questions of the person's driver. And so that kind of made a name for him in the medical community. On another um, occasion, observation helped him solve another mystifying condition. There was a young nursing student that had contracted something, uh, probably from the hospital that she worked at, but nobody knew what it was. It had very strange symptoms. Um, She had taken ill. She was sent home. To recuperate, her friend, who was also a nursing student, volunteered to look after her um, uh, during the nights so that there was always someone with her. And they thought maybe she had late stages of tuberculosis of the bowel. Uh, What was so confusing to doctors is that at nighttime, her temperature would spike to near lethal uh, levels. And yet, in the morning, when the doctors came to check her, she was completely normal and there were no symptoms whatsoever. And she was just, she was fine. Um, But this just kept on going over and over. So eventually they called in Martin Lloyd-Jones so that he could come and use his superpowers. And when he got there, he noticed that she was wearing eyeshadow and rouge and lipstick. And he asked her some questions and the questions of a friend. And eventually he dismissed everybody in the room and asked everybody to leave. And uh, they were alone for a few minutes. And then when he left, he announced to all the waiting doctors that he had rightly diagnosed this and that within a few days she would return to normal, she'd be perfectly healthy, and it wouldn't come back. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And everyone wanted to know how he had cured her, and he he wouldn't tell anyone what the cure was until many, many years later um, in his old age. he, He revealed that he said, I've never known a dying girl to have any interest in wearing makeup. And he rightly deduced that there was something else going on because he knew the nursing school and he knew the matron was particularly strict. And he said to her, I know that you've been faking your disease and that you've got your friend to help you and that she is heating up the thermometer at night and making you look sick. What happened? And so the girl confessed to him that her and her friend had had um, male visitors come to the dorms and had been expelled because of that. And they were afraid to tell this to their parents, so they concocted this idea of the disease where she would come look after them, and then they they had this elaborate strategy. And he told her, okay, I won't tell anyone about this, um, but make sure that the disease 
slowly but surely goes away over the next few days. And she said she would do that. Um, well, in our spiritual lives, uh, we sometimes also need a diagnosis. We, we sometimes have something inside us that it's difficult to diagnose, it's difficult to see what's wrong with a person. Maybe they know, maybe they don't know. Well, Dr. Luke, our physician, supplies us with six tests tonight to self-diagnose whether or not we are Pharisees. You can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Um, after healing a mute man, he warned the people that were craving signs that he's not going to give them a sign because they kept uh, wanting to see the sign and not looking at what the sign was pointing to, the fact that his claims were right, the fact that he was the Messiah. Now he is about to be invited to dine in the lion's den at the home of a Pharisee. Uh, so let me first read for you the, the introductory lesson that leads to this. I'll pick it up in verse uh, 33. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. Uh, verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on a lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is also full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined, as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. So just before we read the, the passage that we're going to be looking at in depth tonight, I want to just point out what's happening here. So this is the, uh, the famous saying of Jesus that you, you don't light a lamp and then uh, stick it in a cellar or put it under a basket. And the point there is that you want your good works to be seen by men. That's how he says it in Matthew. You, you want who you are and what you believe and how the Lord has changed you to be visible. So if you're a Christian, you, you need to be public about being a Christian. You don't want to hide that. And you, you should be able to uh, function as a Christian so that people can see what God has done for you. But that only works if you actually are a Christian. He doesn't want you to be a hypocrite. He says that the eye is the lamp of the body. And it's kind of, it's kind of a strange image. I think it's easier to think of it as the window. Because he says um, in verse 34, the eye is the lamp of your body. Let's say a window. When your eye is clear, so let's say there's no curtain in front of it and it's clean, your whole body is full of light. When it's bad, your body's full of darkness. Um, Therefore, watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If, therefore, your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined. So think of it as you've either got light inside you, and when your eyes open and it's clear, the light's shining out. Or if you were dark inside you and you opened the window, what would come out? Nothing, because you're dark inside. And so he's, he's kind of transitioning from the, the metaphor of um, be, a, be a light for people, shine what God's done in your life, but... Make sure that it's not hypocrisy. Make sure that what's in you is actually light so that the light that comes out of you is what people see. If you're actually dark inside, then you're missing the whole point. And that leads now into this next... Luke puts this, um, uh, this event right after this teaching. I believe it happens straight after the teaching, but the way it's arranged here is uh, fascinating because this discussion about hypocrisy now turns into kind of an explanation of that or an illustration of that hypocrisy. So verse 37. Now, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have a meal with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you 
You're full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you're like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. And that's as far as we'll get tonight. And then next time, not next week, but the following week, we'll get to the lawyer. And um, Jesus is just warming up with the Pharisees. He has some harsh words for the lawyer. But we're going to look at six typical traits of a Pharisee so that you can diagnose your own hypocrisy. You can do a self-diagnosis. Firstly, Pharisees have hidden agendas. They also hold traditions above Scripture. They're concerned with appearances. They major on minor issues. They love to be honored by men, and they deliberately deceive people. And yes, I think we'll get through all of these tonight. We'll go quickly. Pharisees have hidden agendas. Look at verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. So uh, remember that the Pharisees are a, a group of Jewish people who took keeping the law of Moses particularly seriously. So all the Jews were supposed to keep the law of Moses, but Pharisees were those uh, who were particularly dedicated to it, and uh, they became kind of a leading class of teachers. Uh, the Pharisees were men. They dressed in a certain way. They, they had you know, uh, a, a way of dressing that showed that they were Pharisee with the fringes that they would wear and the color of the, ta- the tassels that they had and those types of things. And they were quite proud of the fact that among all Jews trying to be Jewish and trying to be holy, they were the ones that were actually taking it seriously. They were the real um, Jewish Jew, the most Jewish of the Jews. And one of these Pharisees invites Jesus to dine with him. Now, this dinner invitation at this point looks like an olive branch. There's a lot of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees uh, in his ministry. We're going, we've just read some of it tonight. He, he calls them out publicly. And, and challenges them, because what they've done is they've turned the Judaism of the heart from the Old Testament into a Judaism of external religion. And this is causing people to think that they're right with God because they're doing external things, but inside they're, they're full of darkness instead of being full of light. So they're letting their light shine, but it's not actually their light that's all just put on for display. And so he's always kind of in conflict with Pharisees. And this one invites him over for dinner. Now, we know that the reason this guy's inviting him over for dinner is that the Pharisees were constantly looking for an opportunity to catch Jesus. They wanted to trap him. They wanted to expose him. They were, uh, we're told in other places that they are jealous of him because all the people are now following him instead of them. We also can see in verse 53, right at the end, we'll see um, when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting to catch him in something that he might say. So this is not a pure motive invitation. It's a hidden agenda. A hidden agenda. So why did Jesus go? If Jesus knows that these people are trying to trap him in something, he knows that he's going to have to walk on eggshells, he's going to have to walk a tightrope, constantly um, being sure he doesn't say the wrong thing, otherwise they're going to cancel him. You know, well, they're going to tweet what he said. They're going to take it out of context. They're going to trap him in some way. Why does he even go? And the answer is because Jesus is gracious. 
and rich hypocritical Pharisees need to be saved just as much as prostitutes and tax collectors. And so there's hope for this Pharisee. We know that there's hope for Pharisees to repent because Paul was a Pharisee and he repented. Nicodemus was a Pharisee and he eventually becomes a follower of Jesus as well. And so Jesus is reaching out to this person. And we also see that there will be other Pharisees there and scribes and lawyers, uh, experts in the law. And even if the person who's communicating with you has a hidden agenda, if you get an opportunity to present the gospel to them, maybe someone else who's listening in will get saved. So you always need to remember that. Don't just say, well, this person's not genuine. They're just trying to catch me. This will happen at work. Somebody will say, oh, so what do you think about this latest thing in the news, knowing that you're going to say something and, and they're just trying to catch you? Oh, what do you think about what the, the president did? Or what do you think about what's happening with abortion? Or what do you think what's happening with transgenderism? Or whatever it is. And, and you know that they're asking in front of the people there to catch you, to make you look old-fashioned, to make you look holier than thou or judgmental. And so you... Your instinct might be, uh, no comment, I'm not even going to go there. But just remember that as long as you have light in you and you're a true believer and your words are truth and they're based in scripture and you can get the gospel out, even if the person with the hidden agenda is trying to bait you, the gospel still has power. The good news of how Jesus lived and died for you and that you can be forgiven in him has power. Just that message of the gospel has power. And so other people there might still be affected by that. Now, on the other hand, another application point, what if you're the one with hidden agendas? Maybe sometimes you just have to ask yourself, like, why am I asking this question? I'm trying to stump the pastor. <laughs> you know, or what's your deal? What's your, what are you, what are you, what are you trying to do? If you're somebody with a hidden agenda, that's, that's a symptom of being a Pharisee. This is what the Pharisees were like. Secondly, Pharisees hold traditions above Scripture. Look at verse 38. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he, Jesus, did not first wash before dinner, ceremonially wash his hands before dinner. So Jesus is going to this guy's party, this guy's dinner, um, with these other Pharisees because he, he, he wants to reach them. He wants to give them a chance. So that even if they deny him, at least they've heard it. At least they've been given a chance to do that. And so he goes, yes, they've got hidden agendas. He knows what it is. But instead of walking on eggshells, uh, tr you know, treading a, a tightrope and trying to say everything right or wrong, Jesus just springs their trap right, of, right off the bat. The first thing he can possibly do wrong, he does wrong and he does it on purpose. He goes to sit down at a table and as he goes there, he walks right past the little basin that everyone else has stopped and washed their hands with. And so uh, ceremonial cleansing was part of what Jews did. All Jews always washed their hands before they ate. And not just, you know, a little antibacterial soap. There was a method of doing it, and it had to do with pouring water, and there were certain motions, and it had become a tradition. And they always did it. Um, not because they believed in germs, even. People didn't know about germs in those days. It was ceremonial. It was symbolic that you were going to go and partaking food now, you were going to um, receive something from God, you wanted to do it with clean hands, as in sinlessness. It's a way of saying grace almost, and everyone always does it. And Jesus says, I'm just going to spring your trap right now. You, you want to catch me in something? Catch me in this. You know, pass the food. 
and and you know, it's kind of like everyone's just shocked. I mean, you know what that's like when you see the guy walk out of the bathroom stall and he goes straight out without washing his hands. You're like, you know, everyone's like, what is he doing? Think about it. These Jews never ate with Gentiles. Gentiles are the only people that eat without washing their hands. So it's very possible that the people in this room have never had a meal in their life with somebody who didn't wash their hands. And Jesus just springs the trap. I mean, this is shocking. And Jesus is doing this on purpose. It's not like he forgot. He's doing this on purpose. And why? Because the most loving thing to do with a hypocrite is to not pander to the hypocrisy. Don't play along with it. Confront it. Let's talk about it. In fact, I'm going to make you bring up the subject. All I'm doing is eating dinner. You got a problem? Everyone's having a conniption that I walk past the basin? Let's talk about that. So he doesn't want to pander to the illegalism. He wants to expose it. He wants to deal with it. And that is the most loving thing you can do. This is not unloving. He's not just picking a fight here. This is what they need. And our, our um, instinct is often to keep the peace, right? Oh, I'm not going to bring that up. It's going to be a whole big thing. I just want to keep the peace with my family members who don't believe this thing or don't know this or whatever. Or you just want to, you just kind of want to keep the peace. You just want to move on. This happened to me yesterday. I mean, yesterday, I, so I'd been reading and studying for this, so, so it was fresh in my mind. So thankfully, I think I did the opposite of what my instinct told me, but... I was at a car dealership, and this person says to me, oh, you're, so what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, you're a pastor, he says. I'm, I'm Catholic. So I said, I, you kind of want to just be like, that's nice. So how much do I owe here? You know, like, just keep the peace. I don't want to, I don't want to make this a whole big thing. But I said, yeah, I was Catholic too, and then I converted, and now I'm Baptist. <laughs> so I knew the next question is, oh, well, Why? And I didn't, I could have said, it's a long story or whatever. I don't really have time. How much do I owe? Whatever. I said, well, because I started reading the Bible for myself and I realized that what Catholics teach is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. They can't both be right, so I have to pick one. At this point, there's other customers and another person working and the manager and everyone's just kind of dropping what they're doing and like watching this go down. (laughs) And it's awkward, okay? It's awkward. You're the guy that's just, you're being, you're the, this, the one who doesn't have any social etiquette here. I understand that. But sometimes that's what's best. Otherwise, this person might never, ever hear that there's even another viewpoint out there. They might think, oh, well, you just, and, and then he said, well, I believe that all religions, uh, it doesn't matter what religion you are, as long as you're sincere and you love God. And I said, unfortunately, that is the exact opposite of what the Bible says. So, I mean, I'm like the pit bull guy that's not, he's trying to defuse it now, and I'm going after him. And I, you know me, I'm not like that by personality, maybe in the pulpit, but not in real life. But I really think that this, this is what Jesus is doing here. He's setting an example for us that the most loving thing to do is to bring things to a head sometimes so that you can talk about it. I want you to bear this in mind, though. Jesus is not breaking a law of God. Jesus never broke a law of God. He was perfectly sinless. He's not doing anything wrong. The word here of the host is that he was astonished. He was astonished. It's the same word that the crowd 
that Luke uses to describe what the crowd's reaction was when they saw a miracle. That's how they're astonished at the miracles Jesus is doing. This guy is astonished at the fact that he's not keeping a man-made tradition. This is shocking to this Pharisee. But the Jews had trouble distinguishing between the law of God and the law of man. And this is at the heart of their problem. They couldn't tell the difference between when something was actually a rule from God and when it was just a church rule that they'd made up and handed down through the generations. They didn't know the difference. So remember, this is the point. The first point was that they have hidden agendas, but Pharisees hold to traditions above Scripture. And that's what's going on here. That's why this guy's so uh, incensed and astonished because he's never seen a Jewish rabbi who claims to be holy, claims to be from God, do something that's clearly, in his mind, sinful. And Jesus is trying to make the point, this isn't sinful. You might say it this way, show me a verse. There's no verse. Now, in the Mishnah, which is a commentary on the Old Testament law, that the Jews had come up with in a book called Sanhedrin, chapter 3 and verse 10 of that book in the Mishnah. It says that when you're in doubt as to the application of Scripture, rather keep the traditions of the rabbis over your interpretation of the Scripture. So when you see a tradition of the rabbi and you see the Bible and you're not sure how this works, stick with what the rabbi says. And the thinking is that the Scriptures are beyond your... um, your normal person's comprehension, but the rabbis are very plain spoken, so just go with them. But, but in essence, what that teaches them to do is, I don't see a verse in the Bible that says anything about cleaning your hands before you eat, but the rabbis say I should do it, so it becomes like Scripture. And they won't break that. You remember when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, they're just like, you know, do not compute, because healing is something that only God can do, but he's doing it on the Sabbath, and the rule is you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And, and they just... They just don't understand what the scriptures say because there's so many man-made rules about the Sabbath that they're, they're like, I know it doesn't say anything about healing, but it, surely it should be in there. So in Mark 7, verse 6, Jesus says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he says to them, You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. That's Mark chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. You leave the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Now, Jesus is not against tradition. You can have a tradition. But he's against a person making their tradition, their custom, their man-made rule, their convention, their policy, above what Scripture says to do. I've used this example before. A friend of mine who's gone into ministry, the first time we met, he was a pastor from England. He had come to South Africa, and he made an appointment to see me to ask my counsel on something. And he said he was a pastor in this church in England, a little church in England, and they had in their constitution, the church had been planted 100 years before. It's a 100-year-old church, and in their constitution, it said that members may not evangelize people. You may not share the gospel with people, including their children. Because God is sovereign over salvation, and God will save who he wants without man's interference. It was planted by what we call hyper-Calvinists, 
people who believe uh, they emphasize the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the role of God in salvation so much that they ignore the verses in Scripture of man's responsibility. There are many verses in Scripture that tell us that we are to preach the gospel, that we are to evangelize, that we are to share the good news with others. Jesus just said, let your, your light shine before men. Don't stick it under a basket. And he, one of the elders, when he pointed this out to the elder, that the Bible says we should be evangelizing, the elder said, if you even suggest that we change the doctrinal statement, I will, I will split this church. And so he was asking me, what do I do? I don't want to disrupt the church. And Just think about that. A person who is willing to attack the bride of Christ, even though there's Bible verses saying that you're supposed to do this, because the doctrinal statement made by men 100 years ago says something different than the Bible. I told him to leave the church, and he did, and now he's a pastor in South Africa. So <laughs> after he went to seminary, so there you go. Traditions are allowed, but if another Christian doesn't observe those traditions, do you judge them? Do you look down on them? Do you think of yourself as more holy because you've got your little rule, your little tradition, the way you do things? You have to learn the difference between what you and your church and family do as a tradition, which may be fine, as opposed to what it says in Scripture. Let me ask you just a couple of questions just to just jab you a little. What if we decided that for this year we're going to have our services on Fridays instead of Sundays? Sunday's a family day. Friday we'll have church. Is there anything in the Bible that says we shouldn't do that? That's what the Christians in Dubai do. Are they all in sin? I mean, I'm not ask, asking for an answer, but <laughs> think about it for a moment. What if we decided to do the singing after the sermon on Sunday? What if we decided to get rid of the pulpit and have me sit on a, on a chair up here when I preach? I mean, I wouldn't, <laughs> but, but that's just a tradition. There's no verse in the Bible that says you need a pulpit. What if I came to, to church and I preached in shorts and flip-flops? It's mobile for crying out loud. It's not going to be offensive to anyone. You come to church in shorts and flip-flops. Why can't I? Well, because there must be a verse in there somewhere, right? There isn't. I've checked. Anyway, well, I mean, I'm happy with traditions. Just remember that if somebody comes and they violate your tradition... Give them the benefit of the doubt if they're not violating Scripture. Thirdly, Pharisees value externals more than the heart. Verse 39, the Lord said to him, You Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but the inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, or it's charity, those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So what his point here is that you're, you're so concerned with the externals and the way things look that you don't worry about what's actually happening inside. If you're actually being generous and you're actually being charitable and you're actually giving alms, as it were, and then you're that type of person, then the outside's going to look fine too. 
But if you are full of darkness and you're just having this fake light out there by cleaning the outside, you're completely missing the point. Didn't God, who made the inside and the outside, make them both? God's not just concerned about the outside. He's concerned about the inside. He made that too. That's, that's kind of what he's saying here. So the, the, the issue that he has here is their value system. The Pharisees were very, very careful about what they would wear and um, how they would talk and how they would live and how they would act so that they would look godly. They weren't actually concerned about being godly. That's why he does this whole hand thing. Because remember, in their minds, they're not washing germs with their hands. It's symbolic that they would have clean hands before God. Who has clean hands before God? Jesus. Jesus has never, ever sinned. He doesn't need any symbolic washing. But they're concerned about the way it looks. Imagine this. You're, you're a dad and you decide, we're going to skip church this Sunday. We're going to go to the beach. And so you tell your family, good news, kids. We don't have to go to church tonight. We're all going to go to the beach. So you pile in the car. You drive to the beach. You know that you're not going to see anyone else from the church because everyone else at the church is going to be at the church. And then you get to the beach, and there's another deadbeat dad there with his family. And they also skip church. And as you pull in the parking lot, you see that family going to the beach. And you tell your family, uh, we're going to go to a different beach. We're just going to go up this way. I don't want them to see us. So now, what's going on there? You don't mind skipping church to go to the beach. You do mind someone finding out about it. You see, those are two different things that you're worried about. And Jesus says you're completely missing the point. Who cares if, it, if everyone on the outside doesn't see what's happening? If it's on the inside, there's still a problem. You might say, well, I don't want to go for debt counseling. You know, I don't want to tell the pastor that we're in debt and we need help to get out and, because then I might look like I'm in debt. Okay, so you want to look like you're a real good steward of your money. You don't want to actually become a real good steward of your money. You just want to look that way. You, you want to be a bad steward of your money, but you want to look like a good steward of your money. And, and Jesus says, you fools. You fools. He made the inside and he made the outside. Falsely, they major on minor issues. This is another thing hypocrites do. They get fixated on little, little things. Verse 42, woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe, that means pay 10% of, you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He's, he's saying, I'm not, I'm not preaching a sermon against tithing here. He's like, go ahead and do it, but don't, don't just do the ones that everyone sees you do. Do the other stuff too. Actually love, love God. And so what they were doing is, and he uses, you know, mint and rue, uh, you know, cumin and dill and salt and pepper and cinnamon. And it, what they would do is they're like, I give 10% of everything I have to the Lord. So somebody gave me some salt. So I'm going to put 10% of my salt in the offering plate just so that everyone sees that I'm giving 10% of what I have to the Lord. And, and why would they do that? So that everyone sees that they tithe and how committed they are. Because if they're tithing the little stuff like cinnamon, well, then they must be tithing all of their money as well. And he's saying, you're, you're kind of missing the point. The point of giving money to the church is so that they can help the poor and they can do the work of the ministry. You don't want to do that. You're not doing that. You just want everyone to think that, that you're the type of person that would. 
missing the point. He calls them you blind guides in Matthew 23, 24. You blind guides straining out a net and swallowing a camel. This is the person that asks the waitress, I'm sorry, there's only sugar on the table. Can you please bring me some sweetener? Is there some equal or sweet and low or something? And then the waitress looks at you funny because you ordered a death by chocolate cake. <laughs> it's like, you really think that the sweetener is going to help when you're ordering the chocolate cake? That's straining out the net, but you're swallowing the camel. It means that you're fixating on some little minor detail, but you're missing the whole point. What about you? Do you major on the minors? Sometimes parents do this with their kids, too. Focus on the little things that your kids are doing wrong, and you kind of miss the bigger picture of all the stuff that they're doing right, you know? Fifthly, Pharisees love to be honored by men. Verse 43, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplace. So Jesus isn't condemning wanting a good seat like if you go to the movies, you know, and they say, uh, what seat do you want? Don't say to the lady, just, just give me the worst seat. I'm a Christian. That's not the point. The point is not that they wanted good seats for the opera or something, but they wanted the seats of honor so that everyone would think that they're the VIP. So there's a, there's a very specific, you know, shame cultures have these. If you're sitting here, it means this. If you're sitting there, it means that. And so they wanted those seats so that people say, wherever I go, I'm the VIP. They love the best seats in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplaces. So they, they, they love getting recognition. They're, it's one thing to be, so rabbi is like a title. Um, often the Pharisees would be teachers as well, so they'd be called rabbi. And a rabbi is a title like we would say doctor. You know, so it, it shows that there's been studying and there's some respect involved. And so they would love to be called rabbi in the marketplace. In other words, in front of other people. So this is the person, it's one thing to, you know, have a doctorate, but wow, I love it when people spot me in the mall and from across the whole mall, they say, hi, Dr. Archer. And I'm like, say that again, please, let everyone hear. You know, that's kind of missing the whole point again. That's what these people were like. They insisted that they get called by their title. There's nothing more annoying than a person that insists than being called by the title. I, I, well, I was part of a pastor's fraternal in South Africa and the there were a few of us, like four or five of us, that used to get together every month for many, many years, and we got to know each other really well, and there was this new pastor in town. <laughs> and it was so awesome, because uh, so I met this new pastor, and I took him out to lunch, and while we were talking, I would call, let's call him Dave. Um, every time I said Dave, he would correct me and say, it's Pastor Dave. So I'm like, okay, so we would talk, 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 and I'd say, um, oh, thanks so much, Dave, that was, a, it's Pastor Dave. So what I picture happening is he's trying to, he's a younger guy, he's trying to instill in his congregation that they need to treat him with respect and not look down on his youth, so he's been telling his congregation to call him Pastor Dave or whatever, but he hasn't, he hasn't turned off the switch when he's talking to another pastor. Like, you're not my pastor, buddy. <laughs> so anyway, so I was like, okay, so I called him Pastor Dave, but then when I got to the fraternal early that next time, I said, hey, uh, this guy Dave's coming and he likes to be called pastor. So what we're going to do is we're each going to take turns calling him um, Dave without pastor and see how many times we can get him to say, actually, it's pastor Dave. Considering we're all pastors, you know. Um, and one of the other guys had a way better idea. He's like, no, no, no. We should just call each other, you know, Pastor Clint and Pastor Bob the whole time in front of them. And then just call him Dave. Like, yes. 
So why would we do that? Because it's biblical. It's, um, it's, it's what Jesus says. It's wrong to want to be called rabbi. It's okay to be called rabbi. It's wrong to want to be called rabbi, right? Greetings in the marketplace. For you, it might be something like, I love having that little Lucite um, monument on my, behind my desk that says Salesman of the Week. I was Salesman of the Week, the third week in 1982. And I still have that little monument on my shelf for everybody to see. I was Salesman of the Week. I've got the, the, the mug that says World's Best Boss. And I just always make sure that everyone can see that it says that when they walk in that, you know, my people bought that for me. Actually, I bought it, but they wanted to buy it for me, you know, that kind of thing. So they love to be honored by men. Finally, they deliberately deceive people. Pharisees, you think of them as these little caricatures that just, oh, they're so full of themselves. They're so narcissistic, but actually they're, they're in on it. They're doing this on purpose. Look at verse 44. He says, woe to you for you're like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without knowing it. So a grave, don't think of, like for us, a grave is sort of like a a mound of dirt there. For them, a grave would be something that is carved into the hillside or um, into the ground. It would would be marked um, with the stones. And what they would do is they would put whitewash on them. So they would paint them with white. Because if you, Leviticus says that if you touch a dead corpse, a corpse, or anything that's touched a corpse, you are unclean until sundown, and you can't go into the temple, and you can't touch anyone else. So it's just inconvenient if you accidentally touch something that's touched a grave. It's an, uh, and graves in those days were kind of nasty little places to go because it's a little room, and, and families were buried together, not the way we do it. They were buried in ossuaries, which are bone boxes. The bone box is about yay big. And you might be thinking, how does someone fit into that? Well, use your imagination. How do you get a whole person into a box that's yay big? Well, you have to leave them to decay for a year. And after a year, you go in and you break up the skeleton into pieces that fit into the box. And then you label it grandma. And you put her next to grandpa on the shelf until the next person. So there's a place where the bodies decay. And then there's a place where the bones are put. All that to say, you don't want to touch one of these things by accident. So that's why they were marked. So don't be confused because in another place, Jesus uses the metaphor where he says, um, you are like whitewashed tombs because you're clean and white on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones. This is the, op- he's using a different metaphor here. He's saying you're like an unmarked grave. So you are, you are constantly causing people to be unclean and they don't even know it. You're like a camouflage grave. You're like a, a walking, sneaky, unclean machine that everything you touch is becoming unclean. And you, you hide that fact rather than, than you know, being a tomb that's marked, that this is a tomb, don't touch it. So that's what he's saying. And so his point here is you are deliberately deceiving people. You are causing other people to go astray and you, you're doing it on purpose. Matthew 7, 15, he said, Beware of false prophets. You will recognize them by their fruits. Pharisees were dangerous people. And this is something that you need to come to terms with, that religious leaders today who are leading people astray, sometimes they're self-deceived and they're just 
They're not doing it on purpose. But very often, religious leaders are leading people astray deliberately, willfully, knowingly. They know that what they're teaching is wrong, but they do it anyway for whatever reason. And the reason is usually money or popularity, fame, or influence, or whatever it is. As Christians, we're soft targets because sometimes it feels like if you doubt the preacher, you're doubting God. You never have to trust the preacher. You only have to trust the Word of God. So if I tell you something that you have to believe, I need to show it to you from Scripture. That's why we always say, read the verse. I always give you the context of the verse. I give a cross-reference for the verse. I explain the verse. I illustrate the verse. I apply the verse. The authority comes from the verse. If I ever say to you, look, just trust me on this. Do this thing, this religious thing, and God will love you for it, and you'll be fine. And I never show you in the Bible. You can just be like, yeah, no thanks. You've got to show the person in Scripture. And when you meet Christians that are, are, are just duped by some belief, and you ask them, well, why do you believe that? And they say, well, that's what the pastor told me. I grew up in church, and that's what they, that's what they taught my church. And my parents believed it, and my aunts and uncles believed it, and our friends believed it, and you ask them why they believe it, and they said, well, the pastor told me. Then you ask the pastor, well, why do you tell them that? He's not going to tell you the answer, but usually the answer is, I needed a job. It was working. People were still giving money. I mean, it's deliberate. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. That's 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. Satan disguises himself. Don't you think that his servants are disguised? You're never ever going to go to a church where the guy up front is, you know, has like a pentagram tattoo on his, on his forehead. He's wearing I Love Satan um, t-shirts. And, you know, that's not how Satanists make Christians go astray. Christians don't go to church where the pastor's a Satanist. They go to church where the pastor's a Christian. Or at least he says he is. And he does enough to make people think that he is. But maybe behind the scenes, stuff is happening and people notice it, but they give him the benefit of the doubt and nobody does anything. And often these people, there's this long pattern of strange behavior, sinful behavior, and when they finally get exposed, you ask the people in the church, did you never see this? And they're like, we did, but we... No one, no one ever said anything. I'm grateful we have elders that will hold each other accountable. If I'm living a double life, my wife's the first one that will report me to the elders. right? And that's good. So, in conclusion, what if you are a Pharisee? What if you've done this self-diagnosis and you realize, I'm actually a hypocrite. I'm actually not full of light that shines out. I'm actually full of darkness, and I've just got this exterior. Nobody sees it. What do I do? Well, there's hope for you, like there was hope for Paul, who was a Pharisee, like there was hope for... Nicodemus, there's hope for anyone. Anyone can be saved of any sin, even the sin of hypocrisy, if you repent. You need to be willing to admit your sin. You need to be willing to expose it. Bring it to the light. Confess it. Don't pretend to be godly. Actually be godly. 
The problem with Pharisees is when Jesus exposes them, instead of asking for forgiveness, they seek to trap him and get rid of him. When somebody points out sin in your life, is your instinct to discredit that person, to chase them away, to run away from it? Or is your instinct to examine your life and see if that confrontation is real, if that sin is, is real, and if it is, to repent of it and confess it? If you refuse to recognize the Pharisee in the mirror, that's the most clear sign that you're a Pharisee. Without repentance, there's no hope. And Jesus is only getting warmed up. So come back in two weeks' time and we'll carry on with the rest of the text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this chilling reminder how easy it is to live a double life, to be filled with darkness, and yet have a shiny exterior. Would you pray, Lord, that you'd help each and every one of us to search our hearts, to make sure that we're right with you, that we love you, that we love our neighbors, that we are not going to be so concerned about what other people think about our godliness, but rather that we would actually be godly and that you would wrought that work in our life for us. We pray for repentance. Uh, we pray for forgiveness. And we're so thankful that Jesus Christ lived and died so that we can be cleansed of all of our sins. And so we pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, well, we have a few minutes for Q&A. I wanted to follow up on a question I was asked last week because there's been some developments. I was asked last week about um, a situation where a Christian gets invited to a wedding, um, a so-called wedding or marriage of two gay people or you know, a person to a trans person or something like that. And so the question came up because there was a pastor who had given advice to a grandmother in his church that she should go to her grandson's wedding to a trans person and that she should, in fact, take a gift. And so I, I commented a bit on that. I, I don't want to talk about the individual pastor, but just in general principles. Um, so unfortunately, that pastor was confronted on that view because, like I said last week, okay, let me first start by saying I don't think that that's the best counsel. Let me first say this. Please have patience with your pastors. <laughs> pastors get asked thousands of questions over their career. Um, they say millions of words. They're bound to get stuff wrong. So I have been asked things here in a Q&A that afterwards I've thought, yeah, that's, that probably was not the wisest counsel or best thing. And uh, sometimes I'll even ask David to take it out of the, the recording, you know, because um, I don't want it on record or whatever. But uh, sometimes we make mistakes. So if you hear of a pastor making a mistake, please just be gracious. Just give him the benefit of the doubt. If you have a whole career of faithfulness um, to the word and you say something that's a little bit strange, give the guy a chance to backtrack it, you know, and, and say, yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay, I shouldn't have said that. This is a better way of saying it or this is what I meant. People have often said to me, you said this in a sermon. You said this in a Q&A. And I'm like, oh, that's not my view. Let me explain what my view actually is. Maybe I shouldn't have said it that way. Unfortunately, this particular pastor, when that was brought to his attention, he kind of doubled down. And he said, no, he would not take that back. He did say that he would not always give that counsel in every situation, but in that particular situation he would. And if, if someone else came to him with the same question, he might give a different answer. And that's another thing to take into account, by the way, is that pastors know their flocks. Um, and they know the situation. There's always a lot of context. But still, as I said last week, and I hold to this, I can't think of a situation where I would give someone counsel to go to a gay wedding um, in support of it. And, and this is why, because in our culture, 
we're now being taught to start thinking like, oh, this is just another form of marriage. Like, wouldn't you go to the wedding of two unbelievers? Well, I would because unbelievers getting married to each other is, is not a sin. They're actually commanded to be married rather than to live together, right? So they're doing something good, and I want to celebrate that. Marriage is a good thing. But marriage between a man and a man or a woman and a woman is not a marriage. It is a commitment, a legal, in some cases, in other cases, it's just a public or whatever. It's a commitment to be entrenched in their sin. And so there's no way a Christian can support that. Now, the, the, this pastor said, I want to fall on the side of being compassionate rather than being judgmental. But those two things, you know, you can be loving and compassionate and still say, I'm not supporting you in your sin. Um, Romans verse 132 um, has this concept of not only were they doing the sin, but they were giving hearty approval to those who did it, and that itself is a sin. Giving approval to sin is a sin. So, unfortunately, the way he did this is he went to the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, the prodigal son, the only person who's not at the party when the prodigal son comes back is the self-righteous, pharisaical brother. So you don't want to be that guy. But that's a misunderstanding of that parable, because that parable is about a a sinner who repents, and there's a great party about that, and then the self-righteous guy doesn't want to go and celebrate the repentance. That's different. Yeah, don't be that guy. Go, and, go and, and celebrate the repentance from sin. That's not a gay wedding. A gay wedding isn't a repentance from sin. It's an entrenchment. It's a commitment to sin. So I would say it's, he also used the Good Samaritan. You know, um, you, you know better, so you should love more. Well, again, it's not unloving to say to a person, I can't support you in your sin. This is destructive to you. This is destructive to society. This is against God. And I can't celebrate that. I will be here to pick up the pieces when this goes south. And I will love you in that way. But I'm not going to support it and give you a gift and a card and pretend that it's a wonderful thing. It's not. I would ask you this. Would you go to a wedding between a believer and an unbeliever? No, that's also sin. Um, if your granddaughter was becoming a witch and she was joining her coven and her coven called um, the friends and family to come to this little satanic ritual that they were going to do to invest her with the powers of Satan, and she invited you, would you come and bring a gift? Of course not, because you don't want to, you don't want to celebrate, endorse, support, and in any way be part of a person committing to something that is that deadly to them and that sinful. And so that's why a gay wedding is it's in that category, even though our society is trying to make it feel like a different category. I think that's all I had to say about that. Okay, any questions about that? Follow up, and then we'll open up. Yes, Dan. Yes. That's a good point. Let me let me restate that for the people who can't hear. So. Uh, one of the things the pastor said was that the reason he gave this particular lady this counsel is because he was concerned about her relationship with her grandson. So that's, I understand that, the idea that um, you want to build a relationship. Um, the principle is strong relationships allow you to have strong words. So I try to build a strong relationship with a friend of mine who's a homosexual so that we have a relationship of trust so that I can call him to repentance. Um, and there may be different ways of doing that without endorsing the person's sin. Um, but what Danny's saying is a really good point. Like, there's sometimes you can't do that. 
because your relationship is being, even though it's with a family, that relationship's being disrupted, but it's not being disrupted by you. It's being disrupted by the person's sin. And Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And so when you do stand for the gospel, at times that's going to put you in conflict, even with people that are close to you. And don't fall into the trap of thinking my responsibility is to, to keep close to that person so that they have a Christian in their life. No, my responsibility is to stay close to Jesus and be a, a, a witness to the person and to love them without supporting their sin. And if they cut me out, that's their deal. That's Jesus bringing a sword. I'm never going to compromise my relationship with Jesus to support the person's sin so that I can have a close relationship with another person. Does that make sense? I'll take that as a yes. Good. Any other questions? Uh, one over there and then one over there. Yes. That's a really, really good question. Thank you for asking that. Let me clarify. Um, so what Chris is asking, what about in a situation, for example, if you are a parent with adult children who are living in lifestyles of sin, he used the example of, let's say, a boyfriend and girlfriend that are living together, but let's even say uh, a homosexual son and his boyfriend, and they're living together, and now they invite you out to, to dinner. Again, uh, now I've got to be careful, because this is like off the cuff, and I'm not preaching a sermon here, but if I... If, if you came to me for counsel, I would start by asking a lot of questions and getting my finger on the pulse of the actual context and situation. And one of the things I'm going to look for is, does this person understand in a crystal clear way what your view of their sin is? And you've presented the gospel and they know that you don't support it. And you've had that, that difficult conversation. And if the answer to that is yes, and you know this person is not going to take you going to dinner with them as a stamp of approval on their relationship, etc. You know, I would have a lot of caveats. And in some cases, it's going to be appropriate for you to continue fostering a relationship, especially with children, your own children or your parents or whoever, your brother or sister, in order to have a, uh, an ability to speak into their life and call them to repentance. The difference, and in each case, you're going to have to be very careful of what you're doing there. But two, two things I want to say. One is, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, I'm not giving you an instruction to avoid the sexually immoral of this world, for then you would have to go out of the world. I'm giving you an instruction to avoid the so-called brother who is sexually immoral. So if a person calls himself a Christian and they're living in sexual immorality, now I, I need to separate from them. But if a person is an unbeliever and they're living in sexual immorality, welcome to the world, is what Paul's saying. Otherwise, you're going to have to go live on the space station, except there's unbelievers there too. Um, you have to leave the world. So you going out to dinner with anyone who's an unbeliever, you just have to assume that person's living in some sin. They don't know the Lord, including your own children. Um, so, so I wouldn't disassociate with a person. Um, but that's different from going to a celebration of a sinful union that is flying in the face of what God says is permitted. Does that make sense? Thank you. Good. Okay. Well, uh, I, I was actually... Oh, there was a question there. Yes, Corinne.
Right, okay, so applying that counsel to a situation where, let's say, a Christian is going through an unbiblical divorce. So an, un an unbiblical divorce would be um, that a Christian is leaving his or her spouse um, for a reason other than the spouse's sexual immorality. Or if the spouse is an unbeliever and, and they're leaving, that's also permitted. So let's just face it, most reasons people get divorced these days, if it's not for adultery, it's just incompatibility or whatever. So Christians can't get divorced for that reason. So that's what she's asking about. So what is my responsibility to a Christian who's pursuing that? Well, firstly, if it's happening in the church, your church, if it's a church that believes in the Bible, will be applying church discipline, and they'll make a public statement to that person that they are having an unbiblical divorce, and the whole church will be called to call them to repentance. And so you can have a relationship with them in that sense. Hey, let's go out for coffee. I need to talk to you about this divorce. I'm part of the church. I'm going to call you to repentance. If the person's not in your church and it's just somebody in your life, family member or whatever, and they're just a friend of yours, I, again, I would have to know a lot of the context before I gave actual advice, but my general principle is strong relationships allow for strong words. So I would meet with the person in order to help counsel them to do God's will for their sakes. Um, if they continue to pursue that, if they're not in your church, you can't really do church discipline on them yourself. I would have to know more about the situation. It, it is tricky when unbeliever, when believers, professing believers are doing things that they shouldn't do. Yeah, I'd have to think more about that. Okay, I think that's about it. I had another question written down here that I won't be able to get to tonight because it's too long to answer. Okay, thank you. I will see you Sunday.